listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Being at Work. This is your host, Andrea Butcher, and I am super jazzed about today's show. Oh my goodness, there are so many practical takeaways. You know on this show that we talk with executives about a pivotal moment in their career. Well, today's guest, Hannah Pryor, founded her organization, Priority Group, to fulfill a giant commitment helping high achievers blast themselves to the next level. So she knows the impact of pivotal moments. Actually, she is a queen of the pivot, as you'll hear today. Throughout her career, she has been placing small bets and then seeing what happens, being willing to experiment and try things. Listen in as she shares a situation in which she asked herself, How do I redefine this without putting all of my eggs in this basket? Check it out. I graduated from University of Delaware with a degree in finance. Really, more than that, I think a good, real authentic starting place is I'm the daughter of two immigrant parents. My dad was born in India. My mom was born in Pakistan. And so I'm first generation in this country. I have a younger sister, so I'm also the oldest. And... My high school and my college career was really centered on finding myself. But if I'm being very honest, it was also about really making sure that my parents knew that I appreciated that they brought themselves to this country in order to give their family, their children, a better life and opportunities that they wouldn't have. So I really spent a lot of my energy in high school and college getting the good grades, choosing the safe major, you know, doing the things that to me, felt strongly in integrity with making sure that my parents knew that I was not going to, you know, not to quote Hamilton so early, but, you know, I didn't want to throw away my shot, right? I wanted to make sure that I I gave it everything that it deserved to get as far as energy and effort. And so, you know, graduated top of my class in high school, top of my class in college. I landed at a big four public accounting firm. I landed at Ernst & Young right out of college, which, you know, from a name brand recognition and prestige standpoint, I was very excited about, my parents were very excited about, made some of the very best friends in the world in that first job. But in a little over two and a half years, I realized quickly that I was miserable. That was not the job for me. I loved the client service aspect. I realized I have much too much energy, too much extroversion, and too many people skills to be an auditor for a living. And in that moment, I gave myself a bit of a pep talk and said, you're young, you're smart, you're capable. What do you want to do with your life? And so that experience led to my first pivot, which was I have this finance and accounting background. I have these people skills. What might I do? And through a lot of exploration and some discussions, I landed on staffing as a career. I actually met with a staffing professional that had worked at Ernst & Young to help me with a job search. I said, well, this seems pretty great. And she encouraged me to give it a try. So to accelerate a very long story, that led to my wonderful 14-year career at K-Force, in which I did finance and accounting recruitment primarily. And a few years ago, I found myself at a crossroads again, where I loved what I did. I loved the people that I served, but I felt like I had kind of outgrown it. And there was something inside of me itching to do something more with my people skills and do something more with my ability to problem solve and make connections and help elevate insights, things that I had found that I was pretty good at as a staffing professional. And 
a few of my clients made the comment, you know, you're our staffing partner, but we really we treat you as our executive coach at the same time, even though we don't pay you to do that. And so I said, what's executive coaching? You know, what is, what is that about? And so I decided to find out and I enrolled in a program while I was still at my previous company, realized right away that this was the, ne- the next pivot that I wanted to make. And so once again, I, I took a little 90 degree heel turn, pivoted some of the skills that I had been using over the 14 years and entered this current phase in which I started my own coaching and training firm, which is Priority Group and what I'm doing today. And when was it that you started this business? Well, technically, I would say about two and a half years ago. So September 2019, give or take. Awesome. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, it's been an absolute wild rocket ship of a ride over the last two and a half years. I've I've been very grateful. Well, and you are leading through a global pandemic and all kinds of things you hadn't anticipated that you'd be leading through. Yes. Weirdly, the pandemic has been, you know, personally, of course, like everyone else, a challenge professionally, very kind to me. Yeah, a lot of a lot of opportunity that you've seen in the midst of that. Yeah, coaching is a really good place to hang a hat, especially if you're, you know, service minded when people are struggling. And, and a lot of who I tend to work with is women in leadership. And, you know, I think the stats are screaming at this point, we all know what women have gone through in the last year and change. And so it's been honestly, the most rewarding work of my life to be able to step in in this way and and support people through what's been obviously a very difficult time. Yeah, that must feel really fulfilling for you. Yeah, but I do I do attribute a lot of this past year to um, kind of what you said at the beginning, which was not to get attached to what anything was going to look like. So pivots and experiments have been at the cornerstone of everything I've done professionally. You know, taking a little turn here, trying a little something there, you know, it it ended up being fundamental for what I did with my first career change. It ended up being crucial for what I did in my second career change. And it's what's allowed me to build my business quickly to this day is just this experimentation and willingness to say, that's not working. Let's try something else. Yeah. I mean, even in these big pivots that you've highlighted, that's apparent. Right. I mean, even so you said two, two and a half years into Ernst and Young. And I mean, and that's admirable because, you know, you were putting a lot of pressure on yourself, it sounds like, to like really find a home that you could make something of. And you realize pretty quickly, gosh, this is not going to be for me. So that took a lot of courage to to pivot. Yeah. And I also give my parents a lot of credit because I know that when I suggested leaving a big form public accounting firm to enter staffing. (laughs) It was a little, are you sure? Are you sure? And, you know, and I, again, I give them a world of credit because they trusted me. They said, you know, your instincts have never led you wrong. You're always a hard worker in whatever you do. If you feel that a move like this would be good for you, then we trust that you'll be successful at it. And so, you know, with them behind me, it gave me the boost of confidence I needed to go give it a try. And like I said, that try turned into 14 of the best years of my life. I'm so grateful for the 14 years that came after that experiment. So there's a good leadership lesson in that. I mean, it sounds like you had a supportive environment in which to pivot and experiment. You had people that were behind you and encouraging you. Yeah. It, beyond the supportive environment, I would say also, there seems to be this misconception about what it looks like to pivot. People think that you're in this one career 
and you just decide one day it's no longer for you and then you jump into another career. And if that's the definition of a pivot, no wonder people are scared to death to do it because that's terrifying, right? Leaving leaving what you know behind, leaving your safety, your comfort, your place where you have recognition and esteem and just jumping ship for something else. And so when people think about pivoting their careers, I think that's the narrative that comes up for a lot of people. Whereas a successful pivot looks very different. I knew at some point at my EY career that something wasn't working for me. And when staffing got onto my radar, I didn't just quit EY and go. What, you know, this, this one in- individual was my introduction, but then I went on LinkedIn, I made calls, I started talking to people in staffing saying, tell me about your job. Tell me about your day. What do you like? What do you not like? What do you wish you knew then that you know now? What were some of the mistakes that you made? So there was, there was no surprises when I made the pivot. I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew exactly which skill sets I might need to refine and improve and strengthen to be successful. I knew which strengths I would want to lean on. The, the metaphor that comes to mind most strongly is shining a light into a dark closet. You know, if you are looking into a closet and there are no lights on, you can't see anything. You know, how do you, how do you know what's even in there? And this idea of talking to folks that have walked these roads before you, finding other people that have been in these positions, learning from them, asking questions, getting curious, that turns on one little light and then it turns on another little light. And all of a sudden you're looking into a well-lit closet and then you're going, yeah, this is what I want to do. You know, now I can walk in and I can walk in with confidence. Oh, that's so good. What a great metaphor. And I, I really appreciate the encouragement to change the narrative and think about like, what are the ingredients of a successful pivot? That's a great way to think about it. You've outlined a lot of things there, you know, with the relationships, the people. The, the other thing that you didn't say, but I heard in your story is leveraging your natural strengths. When you talked about the, sh- the pivot to executive coaching, I loved it that, that you said others were saying to you like, well, you're really acting like our exec- executive coach. And it's not that you are seeking that or trying to be that. That's just who you are naturally. Yeah. And I, I appreciated those words. And honestly, in the moment, I don't think I even took them with the compliment that they were intended to be. I think I, I kind of was like, oh, thanks. And then moved on with my day, right? The process of mining for one's own strengths is something that I've come to fa- find in the last you know two decades is so important. And a lot of high achieving professionals and leaders don't ever take the time to do it, which is one of the things that I'm so passionate about in the coaching process is if you've never taken the time to really do a deep dive onto your own strengths in a way that's not the normal stuff, you know, there's great assessments and things that do that and and they have their place. But one of the most powerful, powerful things that I've ever done for myself and I've done it several times over the years is you can't see your own strengths clearly. It's too hard. It's, it's, you're, you know what some of them are, but otherwise you're too close to it. You can't see those things clearly. So one of the most powerful things you can do is ask people around you in your orbit. So people that you work with, people that you're friends with, people that are in your family, give them a targeted set of questions that essentially answers the question, what am I uniquely great at? Or you know, what do I bring into a room that's not there before I walk in? What are the things you remember about me when I leave the room? What are the what are the qualities or feelings that come up for you 
when I'm around? You know, those questions, they're simple, but they're not easy. You know, asking them requires a little bit of gumption, right? To be able to to boldly say, I'm really trying to get clearer on what my strengths are. Would you answer these for me? You know, sometimes it feels bold, but I'll tell you, there is nothing like having those reflected to you and really being able to see so clearly from many people for the first time how the world perceives you and what you do well. And the themes that undoubtedly will emerge as you ask people from different aspects of your life. Like, and I love it that you call it mining for one's own strength. Like, even as you said that, I had this picture of like really digging in. I mean, it takes some work. It does take some courage and a lot of curiosity to do that mining. It's not a passive activity. It's an active activity. You have to actually kind of go and seek it out because otherwise, it's funny, there's people I talk to that are, you know, 35, 40, 45, 50 years old that assume that their strengths are the same as the ones that they took from some assessment 20 years before. And people's unique strengths, their their secret weapons, their superpowers, whatever you want to call them, some of them are through nature, right? Genetic, you're just kind of wired that way. That that's true and we don't want to discount that. But many people's strengths and superpowers can be nurtured. And so What was true 20 years ago may not be your greatest strength or superpower anymore. So it's important to continue to keep that active process of mining for them some degree of current so that you can continue to build your trajectory or look at your career with a really accurate lens instead of an old lens. Yeah. Well, and what a simple exercise. I mean, just even those two questions I wrote down, what am I uniquely great at? What do I bring to a room when I enter? What a great question. I mean, you could just text those to people, trusted advisors and people in your life that you care about. And it'd be interesting to see what comes back. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm grateful to have had the right people saying those things to me to help me open the aperture of, I know I want to make a pivot. What would that pivot be? Right. So for these, these coaching skills that ended up being something that were identified, I, I wasn't the one who identified them. You know, it was other people I would say, honestly, what I found was I didn't ask it in that way to those particular clients. I didn't say, what am I uniquely great at? But one thing that is a habit for me is always just asking for feedback. W- what did you like about this, this project that I worked on? What could I have done better? What, di- what could I have improved? And what did I do well? And so just in that day-to-day activity process, it gave people an opportunity to share those skills, even if I wasn't using that original you know, mining phrasing. Well, and it's such a trust building activity. I mean, every time you ask for feedback, I suspect there's trust that's built, there's strength and relationship in that. What impact do you see of asking that question? I think it's not a transactional conversation anymore. You know, there's a a world out there that is spinning around us fast. And it's no secret to anyone that we live in this attention deficit, attention starved environment where people will give you less time the attention span is seconds anymore. They assume that you just want to you know, close the deal or finish the project or you know, w- wipe up the transaction with a sponge and be done with it, right? This is sort of the world we live in now. And just the very nature of stopping long enough to say, how did I do for you? you know, was this what you expected? Was this the, the level of service you hoped to find? Did we show up in the way that you expected? Could we have done more? Just the very nature of those questions both implies that we're in this together, right? That this isn't a transaction. There's this instant sense of belonging that happens. But also, you know, coaching, coaching 101 is this. Coaching is getting curious. So anytime 
we're getting in conversation with leaders about what to do differently, it always starts with and ends with getting curious. So if everything is transactional and statement-based, you've stopped getting curious. And to your first point, trust diminishes, relationships don't strengthen. You know, there's so many reasons that it's just the most important thing. Coaching 101 is getting curious. We could condense all the millions of brilliant books that have been written into all the right and all the definitions just to that. Just get curious. Well, and what a great skill for all leaders, really for all people to understand and connect with each other. Just get curious. Well, and in the curiosity, like when you say that, just in listening to the questions that you're posing there, there's no judgment, there's no predisposition. It's just a very open stance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we were to tie that back to the, you know, placing small bets and experimentation, one of the things that allows small bets to be placed and allows experiments to happen is not to make the decision that this is the thing, right? Like this is the outcome. I think most of us, we get skittish about making a big change because we go too many steps down the road, right? We're already 10, 20 steps ahead of What's the outcome? How's it going to look? What's it going to be? And when we start to do that, we take away permission to just be playful and curious. What might this feel like? What might this look like? Right? So an example of a small bet, I'll just, I'll share what I mean by that. So in my own coaching business, I had a, an idea for a training program that I wanted to create. I thought that there was maybe an opportunity to teach something, but I didn't know if there was an appetite for it yet. And so before I started building and creating and spending all these hours on something, I placed a small bet. I started to reach out to leaders in the industry saying, hey, I'm thinking about creating a training like this. I've started to do some research. What do you see around this topic? Is that something of interest to you? If there was something like that that existed, is that something that you think you might want to explore? Place small bets. Put things out there and see how are people responding? How are they reacting? A couple people said yes. So then I started to create kind of like the first iteration of the program, nothing that was super involved, but a first iteration, I brought in some beta testers, I said, Hey, this is the first iteration, I'd love, you know, no charge, would you take it? Let me know what you think. If they thought it was the worst thing in the world, guess what? Five leaders didn't like it. I threw it away, nothing else came of it. And the only people who knew were those five leaders. That's it. And if it did go well, if they loved it, which it did, luckily, then I doubled down and then I doubled down again and then I doubled down again. But we tend to catastrophize what's going to happen if this big idea doesn't work out. If it didn't work out, five people knew. They knew it was an experiment. They knew I was trying it and they didn't think less of me. That's, that's it. Well, and in some ways, I mean, you may have strengthened your connection with them and those relationships. Think about how, I mean, that, because there's value in the creative process regardless of what happens. A hundred percent. There's energy there, right? And maybe it led to something else. Or I love, I love this story. I think there, gosh, there are just so many nuggets within this story that we could talk about. Yeah, the creative process and also just the early stage of doing the research to vet an idea. You know, maybe this idea wasn't the thing, but just in the process of having those conversations, it sparked another idea. You know, you, you never know when that'll happen. It happens all the time. And so it's just giving yourself permission to be playful and experimental in business, I think is something that so many people have gotten so paralyzed by seriousness and fear in corporate America that they, they've they lost this ability to try things because they're so worried about getting it wrong. 
Well, or heads down. I mean, I, I think about during the, the challenging political season, we do very similar work working with leaders and um, leadership development programs. We kept hearing leaders talk about the challenge of leading through this political climate. What, what happens when I've got team members who really disagree politically? And so we put out this whole series on navigating paradox and how to hold two opposing views and lead through that. And, you know, and so we went to market with it and we did this webinar series and fully expecting like somebody's going to pick that up. Well, they didn't. <laughs> it didn't yeah. become like a thing, but it definitely strengthened some of the work that we were doing. And it led to, with some of our clients, it led to strengthened relationships because we were able to add value in that way. Yeah, I love that story too. It's a perfect example of, you know, no matter how good the idea is and no matter how in service of the client it might be, it is sometimes hard to predict human behavior in that way. And so, why would you throw every resource, dollar, time, energy, effort into it until you place the small bet first? You know, so I'm glad you guys played with it, tried it, and then it sounds like realized pretty quickly, nope, no appetite for this, you know, moving on. It was fun creating. The collaborative process was really fun with the team. There was energy there. That, that's happened for me a couple of times where, you know, it turns out, hey, there isn't a whole big training here, but in the process of creating something, I now have a new tool in the toolbox that I can use in another capacity. You got it. Yeah. A bit of content you can use in a different way. Absolutely. That's so cool. Placing small bets. Yeah. I love that. And I'm so glad you made the connection to the curiosity back to experimenting and pivoting. I mean, it's almost like that's a skill that curiosity openness skill will help you in the experimentation. What has your experience been with leaders? Because you talked about, you know, when there's fear or there's a paralyzing kind of a vibe. How do you coach leaders through that? It depends on the situation, but I, I will say that largely when you're in a conversation with a leader that's afraid to try, sometimes it's the leader and we will talk about, you know, what does fear of failure, you know, how does that play a part? You know, what are, what are the values that you hold dear? You know, sometimes you find out that somebody was raised in a family where perfectionism was rewarded and mistakes were not, you know, and so there's, there's some digging that can happen at the personal level to find out what's behind it, you know, where is the block, but also, again, depending on the angle, you'll often find that this is a culture thing that could stand to be addressed at the macro level. There's still a lot of companies that value perfection more than you know, innovation or trying something new, maybe having a misstep, maybe making a mistake in the spirit of growth and you know, being creative. And as much as they'll, they'll preach it when it comes to the day-to-day -day living, the people who get the promotions and the awards are, you know, not necessarily the ones who are trying new things, making mistakes along the way, innovating. It's the ones who get the report in on time or, you know, get the, the most hours on their timesheet or whatever else it may be. And so I think it depends. We have to kind of diagnose, is it at the leader level where there's some blocks and fear and paralysis, or is a leader working in a culture in which they have to be that way in order to advance and succeed and stay afloat? So what I hear in that is you start with getting curious because it could be it could be a, a whole variety of reasons. And so not assuming, but instead just getting curious and then coaching through that. 
One of my favorite books is, uh, it's a very short read, but it's a book called The Advice Trap by a wonderful, hilarious Australian man named Michael Bungay Stanier. I just adore him. He's my favorite. And the entire kind of premise of the book is that leaders are very quick to advice giving. And it's not, it's not a surprise necessarily because, you know, you get ahead in business by having the answers or having the expertise or having the knowledge. So as an individual contributor or as a staff, you're applauded for those skills. And then you get to leadership and all of a sudden you've built this muscle around immediately jumping in to have the answer. So if a senior leader says, this is the thing that we're going to explore. Why did this happen? You know, Why did this problem come to light? And our default is to say, I know the answer. I know the solution. You know, I can add value to this conversation. And so we jump in with that, not realizing that oftentimes the problem that came up initially isn't the real problem. The problem is underneath the problem. So I'll give the, I'll give the most simple um, visual. I think this may have, might have been in his book or I heard it somewhere. He basically says something like, you know, if you're a salesperson selling, oh, you know, this was, this was somebody else, but he says, if you're a salesperson selling vacuum cleaners, and if, if you're going into someone's house saying, well, you need this, you need this HEPA filter, you need all these things. And then come to find out that this person has a dog that sheds like crazy that they never brush, right? And so maybe the problem isn't which vacuum, maybe the problem is the, the care for the dog that maybe would eliminate some of the shedding, right? So are we solving the right problem? And a lot of times it's leaders that are rushing to advice instead of getting curious that find themselves in these pickles because they're solving a problem. It's just not the right problem. Well, and we know there's such an impact too to empowerment then. I mean, as an employee, I I can think of so many situations in which like I went to my leader really just looking for a sounding board. Like, don't tell me what to do, but ask me questions so that I can figure it out and have have the glory and the win. It's a muscle that unfortunately once strengthened almost needs to be unstrengthened this this desire to immediately default to solution and advice it's it's hard to undo but you can undo it that's the good news are you seeing in this season i mean one of the things for me that's come out of the pandemic as a coach and leadership development facilitator is just all of the content and the energy around empathy and so for me empathy is a great balance to that giving advice it encourages me to just listen and meet them where they are are you seeing that as well yes for sure and i i am to admission a huge brene brown fan girl so she's you know the the queen of shame and vulnerability and empathy so i believe strongly in it what i do see and this is not universal i think there's some people that really get this organically what empathy means and what it's about i also see another suite of people that struggle with this idea of empathy. And I think it's because, and this may not be right, but this is what I think. I think it's because there's some misconception that empathy is some touchy, feely, soft-hearted emotions thing. And it can be, but really at its very root, being empathetic is developing the skill of perspective taking. What is this person dealing with? How can I, for a moment, sit in their chair or walk in their shoes and see it from their perspective. You know, when we when it comes to empathy in business, it doesn't always have to be touchy-feely, soft-hearted. It can be, but it also means just seeing through the eyes of the other. And I think that language sometimes gives even the most resolutely non-emotional person a little bit of a clearer lens on, 
oh, that's what you mean? Okay, I can, I can try to do that more <laughs> versus the definition that maybe feels loaded with emotional touch. I love that. Empathy is perspective taking. It's a great way to name it. I love all of Brene's applications too, but I just know sometimes when I bring them up to folks, they're like, mm, I don't want to talk about feelings. <laughs> like, okay, well, we have to come about this from a different angle then, don't we? Because we can't not. <laughs> so let's name it. Let's name it in a way that feels comfortable to you. That's really good. Okay. So this is awesome. I mean, you've talked a lot over the last several minutes about changing the narrative around a successful pivot and what that looks like. And so you've talked a lot about curiosity and leveraging relationships and mining your natural strengths in, in that process of pivoting and experimenting. So you are, you are such a bright light, you know, through these pivots and these experiments, you are, I, I just, I really love the, the content that you put out, your perspective. So you've clearly done the work. You're also someone who gives a lot in coaching and lifting others. So as we close, I'd love to learn what are your rhythms for keeping yourself centered and engaged and in such a good place so that your light can shine really bright? First of all, that's very nice. Thank you. I'll say this to start. I'm a work in progress. I continue to be a work in progress every day. I'm a work in progress. So even those who may have you know, developed a, the beat of the drum to their profession, I would say I'm a recovering overachiever. <laughs> you know, sometimes I have to step back on a regular basis and redefine success. But there's a few things that I've found work for me. I tried everything. I tried quiet sitting meditation. I tried guided meditation. Those things just, it, it never latched onto. And so what I would say, my first response to that would be create white space in your life, you know, create white space, but don't necessarily feel obligated to make it the same as everyone else's white space. So, you know, I have friends for whom meditation, guided meditation, slow yoga, Tai Chi works beautifully for them. I could not get it to work for me. What I have found works for me is taking a walk outside with no headphones, no phone, just taking a walk. That works much better for me and has the same impact of allowing my thoughts to wander and allowing me to just slow myself down and look out into the distance that, you know, that works best for me. So I, I do think everyone should find their form of white space and not necessarily you know, beat themselves up. If your white space looks like prayer, if it looks like a walk, if it looks like a swim, if it looks like meditation, yoga, biking, whatever it is, find your version because then you're more likely to do it. I tried and failed at a lot of different things <laughs> for a while. And the second thing I would say, which has been really important for me is to find someone who will let you know when your check engine light is on. And by that, I mean, you know, when you're starting to feel frazzled and you're starting to feel overextended and you're not showing up as your best self, you know, have the people in your life that can call you on it. You know, for me, it's my husband. It's some of my best friends. It's honestly my kids. You know, they'll, they'll start to say, mom, you're really short tempered right now, or mom, you're really stressed right now. <laughs> and so having people that you can actually ask guys, you know, let me know if I'm, if I'm overstretching or overdoing it it helps snap me back to reality before the rubber band snaps shut. You know, you don't want that to happen. Just really appreciate both of those strategies. So finding your form of white space and then having people in your life who will tell you when your check engine light is on. 
And what a great way to even frame that up with someone. My, my husband's a car guy. So <laughs> that language, <laughs> awesome. that language resonates with him. Maybe for someone else, it could be a different version. But my car guy husband likes that one. And what I love about that is easier to say, hey, your check engine light is on than, hey, you're being a real asshole or you're not being very nice or... I think that's exactly it. It's a loving way. Language matters. You know, we, we've defined that, hey, your check engine light is on isn't, wow, you're being a stressed out B word. You know, it means, hey, we're worried about you. You're not taking care of yourself right now. Do you need to go take a long shower? Do you want to go take a walk? You know, that's what it kind of translates to. And for me, that feels like such permission to take a beat. So good. Well, yeah, because just like you're taking care of your car and getting your car checked on, it's like I said, I care about you. And here's what I'm here's what I'm noticing. Exactly. Hannah, thank you so much. This is so great. So, so many good takeaways. I feel refreshed and renewed and lots of very practical things. Appreciate all your perspective around how to successfully pivot and experiment along the way. I mean, and just your your point that, you know, you're a work in progress, aren't we all? And so it is like the leadership challenge is a daily personal challenge for each of us. And I just I appreciate your awareness around that and that you're doing the work. If I'm not doing the work, call the doctor <laughs> because I've I've passed out and I'm unconscious. It's always gonna be doing the work. And and I appreciate Andrea what, what you and your organization is doing to just make sure these messages are heard, you know, to the leaders that that need to hear them. So thank you for all that you do too. You know, we are in this together. I, I just so believe in the coaching process. And so I love highlighting and lifting up coaches that are doing the work and modeling the way. I mean, you're modeling the way with your life and the leadership of, of all of it. So thank you. If, if our listeners want to connect with you, what is the best way to do that? LinkedIn is absolutely the number one. I'm very active there. And as far as I know, I'm the only Henna Pryor on LinkedIn. So it's H-E-N-N-A, last name Pryor, P-R-Y-O-R. I do have a website too. It's Priority Group, P-R-Y-O-R-I-T-Y, group.com. And they can always contact me there as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.